Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Hall, psychology student, wife, and mama four. On this podcast, I share helpful life tips and stories from inspirational women. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today. Enjoy the episode. Hey, everyone. Today, I'm here with Anna, a writer and advocate, Anna Blanche Rabe is the founder of Anna Blanche Rabe and Associates, a uh, consultancy specializing in communicating complex ideas with clarity. She is passionate about making legalese easy to understand, empowering community builders, and sharing meaningful stories. Increasingly, she is investing in social impact companies that are changing the world through actionable ideas. So she's a lawyer and literature scholar by training. Anna has appeared on Many stages. <laughs> I'm just gonna go with that. Many stages. Yep. <laughs> and she she had writing and publications as diverse as Huffington Post, Forbes, Media, Military.com, Reserve and Guard Magazine, and Immerse Journal. Proud of her location, independent company. She works with clients across the US and around the world. Thank you, Anna, for coming on the podcast today. <laughs> I'm glad to be here, Megan. It's 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 good to talk to you. Yes. So I, um, I've, we've been connected for a while. I've been following you on Twitter and everything for a while. Um, and I wanted to have you come on, um, because you have a unique journey, um, as an immigrant into the United States. Well, I mean, you've been all around the world. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and we've shared a few immigrant, um, journeys on the podcast, but none of them are quite the same. Um, I've had Brenda on and she came into the United States um, as an undocumented immigrant in the beginning. Um, Then I had, uh, and I'm going to link these all up in the show notes. And then I had Renee who uh, came on the podcast and they came here, quote unquote, the right way. Um, But then ended up being here as undocumented immigrants because the United States immigration process is messed up and broken. Um, Yeah, (laughs) you understand. No, it absolutely is. And I'm so excited to kind of talk to you about it because even in the last day or so, and I know when this podcast airs, it will be about a month after. um, But actually, literally in the last day or so, there's been some legislation that's passed the House uh, addressing some of the things that that may have impacted some of your previous guests. So this is a very exciting time potentially for immigration reform in the U.S. And yeah, I'm, I, I'm always happy to talk about it. Yeah, I listened to uh, Pod Save America, and they were actually talking about this on their most recent episode um, yeah. about how we're having an influx of immigrants coming to the United States. Um, right now, um, but that I guess that happens every year, but it's a, a larger influx yeah. and, and talking about how the immigration system is broken and how yeah. um, the Biden administration is trying to fix it um, to help these children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the case of uh, particularly unaccompanied children is something that absolutely at the moment is uh well, it will always be, you know, a, an issue that we all need to be aware of because, you know, we, we as 
as somebody who I'm not a parent, but I'm an aunt. And to, to imagine one of my eight nieces or nephews being in a situation where their parents were so desperate that that child needed to, um, you know, end up in another country alone, just it's heartbreaking. And, yeah. it, and it shows us, I think, really where the situation lies. I mean, there's over a thousand children uh, in the unaccompanied accommodation at the moment. And I'm actually going to say accommodation rather than detention because the situation right. has changed. Um, quite a bit, thankfully. Um, but yeah, we can certainly talk more about that too and what that looks like uh, for advocates. Because as you mentioned, I have a slightly different journey than, than maybe some people. Um, and I come at it at a slightly different angle because as you also mentioned, I'm a lawyer. So when you, <laughs> you kind of add those things together, it's made for, um, I guess, an opportunity to explore the topic of immigration as somebody who's on the inside of it. Um, but also aware that it's not always straightforward. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> well, I would love how we let's towards the end of the podcast, let's get into that. The, you know, yeah. the legal side, um, the legislation sure. that's going on and all that's going on right now. I would love right now for you to start us off with sharing your personal journey. And so people okay. can understand why your journey is different than the other journeys we have covered. Okay, so, I mean, what's interesting for me is the first time I actually came to the U.S., I had no plans to, uh, to immigrate to the U.S. Um, I came originally um, in 2007 as a graduate student, and I spent two years in the U.S. as a graduate student, and I left the U.S. and actually moved to Scotland um, and did more graduate study. And so I was here as a student, did the student visa thing, um, if you need to know, it was an F1 visa and I then left. Um, I was in Scotland for a while. I was in France. And then I moved back to Australia. And it was shortly after I moved back to Australia that I met my now husband. Um, and I, the, the story kind of starts much earlier than that. But I spent some time in the Australian Army and I'd done some other things earlier in my life before I went to law school. And so one of the things I said I would never do is, is date or marry someone in the military. <laughs> I understand that sentiment. <laughs> right? I'm, I met someone in the US military. So, I mean, it's an interesting situation too because my um, husband, although he himself uh, is American, he's also uh, is the child of an immigrant. So his mother um, grew up in New Zealand. His father is, um, you know, American and, and his family's been in, in the States for, for about, at that point, about 150 years. And so he grew up kind of aware of it, but not really understanding um, too much because when his mother went through the process in the 80s, it was a very different situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we kind of, we dated, we actually only dated for about, oh gosh, 11 months before we got married. And a lot of that was at, at a distance. Yeah. My and we sort of had to make only dated right? three months. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We had an eight week engagement, which some people think is nuts. But in that kind of world, I mean, we talk about this for military families, sometimes you have to make decisions mm-hmm. that aren't based on, you know, this idea of what a wedding might look like. You kind of have to make a decision based on, in our case, we knew there was kind of a hard deadline for when he could deploy and, yeah. and for everybody else. Like, that you know the military has a way god love it of of messing with your plans 
Yep. And knowing that, I just was like, I'm going to limit the amount it can mess with my plans. And so we scheduled the wedding for just before when that could happen. Um, and that, I mean, it just gave us a little bit of peace of mind, I think. But as a consequence, when we first got married, we actually weren't able to um, live together. So I came to the US for a month after we got married. So we had like a week honeymoon in Australia, then, then I came to the US for a month. And then I went back. I went home because we made the decision not to even do what they call a K visa um, okay. or a, a fiance visa. And part of that was our faith. Um, we chose not to live together before we got married. And, and, and honestly, that K visa system doesn't really, it's strange, right? I mean, you hear a lot of people talk about the immigration system and they often tend to be, and I'm exact, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm going to emphasize this a little, they do also tend to be people who are very socially conservative saying, well, everyone needs to come the right way. But I don't think they understand sometimes for families who don't want to kind of maintain two separate households and you're coming from a foreign place, there's not really a lot of options if you don't want to live together before you get married. And I have, I, I love that some of my friends have chosen that option. Right. It just wasn't right for us. So we chose... Um, so we chose to get married in Australia and that came with its own um, things because unlike the kind of average population, my husband actually had to get permission from three or four different levels of military authority to marry me. So he oh had my to get gosh. permission to marry a foreigner and then he had to get permission to get married in Australia. So the first person to wish us congratulations was actually a colonel of the US Embassy in Canberra who congratulated us on our marriage when he gave my husband permission to marry me. I'm not really sure what would have happened if they hadn't given us permission, but that's a whole different discussion. Um, but yeah, so I came to the US for a month after the wedding, then I went back to Australia and, and was there for another four months, four to five months. Um, and that's after some legal advice, we realized that as you know, I could come back to the States, but I would have to kind of keep returning to Australia again, basically, until we kind of were able to um, file the paperwork. But when we, when we got back together in the US the next trip, we just kind of looked at each other and thought, I don't know how we can do this. This is really, really hard. Um, I had a return ticket, so, you know, we'd already spent that money. But we were able to file at that point for what is called an adjustment of status. Okay. Um, and so I have, we filed for my green card with an adjustment of status, but that led to other issues. And that's a lot of people have this situation. And that means that I couldn't then leave the US. Oh, so wow. I had to make a decision. Yeah, I had to make a decision about being with my husband. Um, and that meant not being with my family. And as somebody who, even though I've lived around the world, I'm super close to my extended family. And so over the next couple of years, there were a lot of times where I was kind of holding my breath and hoping that my grandparents would be okay and I wouldn't face this impossible decision of having to kind of um, give up my green card application. Because that's the other thing people don't know is you can't just leave the country if you have filed a, an application. You have to go through a whole nother process. And for the last few years, that process has been so badly backlogged. Um, there have been a lot of people that want to maybe follow the the pattern or path that we've been given but it it leads to some almost impossible decisions um it took ooh, how long in the end it took me 
eight months after that, I got my um, employment authorization. So until that point, I couldn't volunteer. I couldn't do anything. So at that point, wow. I could sort of start volunteering. Um, and as someone who, had, before I had left Australia, I was working, um, I was actually teaching assistant at one of the universities for some master's levels courses. I was uh, in a full-time lay minister role for a church. You know, I was really active and busy. And then all of a sudden I um, I couldn't do anything when I first got to the States. I wasn't, wasn't allowed to do anything. Um, so once that happened, fairly shortly after that, we had our green card interview. Um, and that was an interesting experience because we had to travel four hours for the green card interview. <laughs> Uh, and that's not always easy with a military schedule either. Right. Um, and then the interviewer was kind of funny. The interviewer kind of looked at me, looked at all of our paperwork, looked at where my husband was stationed and actually said to him, now I know this is real because there is no way she would move from there to there unless she <laughs> loved you. And, and I thought of me was like, whoa. And the other part of me was like, mm, she, she's right. Because, because I just, I went from living a block and a half away from the Australian Ocean. Um, I lived in a city called Newcastle and it is just stunning, be- beautiful beaches. And I moved to the desert of New Mexico. And although there is beauty in the desert, it was a challenge, I have to say. I, I didn't wake up to the same kind of environment at all. So um, that was the beginning of the journey. The entire kind of immigration journey took about five years. Wow. Um, it took five years to actually receive my naturalization interview. Um, and and in the midst of that, we had a, a year-long deployment, um, which wasn't easy when I, at that point in time, my green card had actually expired because of the backlog that it was in place as well. And it felt very... There were a lot of times where, you know, it's okay, I'm stumbling a little bit because I think people need to hear part of what I'm saying. It's it's hard to be held up by other people as someone who's done it the right way, but yet also feel so still like there's risk, there's so much risk, right? Because at every point, even until you, even though a green card is supposed to offer you um, support and it's supposed to offer you the, you know, some protection of the U.S. Constitution, um, there was a while there where it didn't really feel like that was happening. Um, I don't know if everyone's familiar, but if you live within that hundred miles from the border of the country, you have to go through immigration checkpoints. Mm-hmm. And every single time I would be asked, are you a U.S. citizen? And I would say no, because I'm not a U.S. citizen. And they would always look at me. Um, it was just, it wasn't even the question I was asked. It was a sense of uncertainty and fear to be challenged um, in that way or so often. Um, it just wasn't, I don't think I realized just how stressful that was actually until we were done. Um, but yeah. Yeah, a lot of people have the misconception that if an immigrant uh, marries somebody in the military, they automatically oh, yeah. get citizenship. <laughs> oh my gosh! I've well, yeah, and and even to the point of like people saying things like, "Oh, you just married him from the for the green card." I mean, there is a part of me that's like, "Look, there was many things to love about the U.S., but I also love being Australian as well." So yeah. I'm like, mm, "Really?" 
Um, yeah, so that's probably something a lot of people need to understand is there's, there's actually no shortcut at all. Being a military spouse or being connected to the military gives you uh, no shortcut. There is an there is actually an extra toll-free hotline that military family members can call. And the idea is that's just staffed with people who maybe understand some of the additional things we deal with, like deployments, like the fact that we move around. So when you're dealing with immigration, with um, Immigration and Customs or USCIS, you have to report to them whenever your address changes. And you have to do that within a short period of time. And as military family members, we, I mean, I had to do that throughout my application process because we did move. In the military, we call that PCS or permanent changes station. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we move, you know, there's extra paperwork we need to do. The other part of that is hard as a military family is at each stage, you have to provide references of people who've known you and your spouse for at least two years. And when the military have been moving you around, it can be a challenge to be able to find enough people who've known you for that long. We were fortunate because um, a couple of the times that we moved, there were other people there that we had been stationed with at previous locations. Gotcha. And they were good enough to be people who were willing to write legal documents saying they knew my husband and I and they knew our relationship was legitimate. Um, But, yeah, it that is a challenge and I think it's also a challenge for other reasons too so you know while the um military can help with some things they don't actually provide say like the medical examination that you have to have as an immigrant um they can't always help with getting the fingerprints that you need and depending on where you're physically located it can be hard to actually even meet the requirements that USCIS has um, for things like that. And I know that might sound odd to people, but we're often in communities that we don't know that well or that we're relatively new to. Um, So that kind of led me to hear more from other military family members um, who had situations that were perhaps even more complicated than mine because, you know, as we mentioned, I can read all the legal documents. I can fill out all the forms myself and I can understand what's going on. And there were times where even I was kind of like, I don't know if I'm doing this right. Mm -hmm. And it makes me realize, well, if I'm struggling with that and I have a law degree, it's going to be really hard for a lot of other people um, to be able to find their way through this this very complicated situation. So Mm -hmm. uh, I think, there's, you know, there's a lot of, especially around the time of the travel ban, that was a particularly hard time for a lot of military families because there were service members, particularly reservists who weren't, and a lot of people don't realize this, you can serve in the military without being a U.S. citizen. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, in fact, I don't know if people realize this, 14% of the U.S. Navy was born outside the U.S. Uh, now, a lot of them have become U.S. citizens, but that's a pretty, you know, hefty amount. At the moment, we don't actually have numbers for how how many military spouses or military family members are immigrants, but it's uh, it's certainly going to be at least that. That um, sort of happens when they station people around the world. Right. <laughs> they tend to fall in love. Yeah, no, and, um, and but yeah, people, it's a, people listening need to realize 
your first language was English. Imagine how hard oh, it must be for somebody who's who barely speaks any English. Yeah, I, I, and I think situations can be complicated too. I mean, certainly, and I will mention just one of my uh, friends in relation to the travel ban. I spoke with a friend of mine who, she is now a US citizen as well. Um, she was in a situation that was quite interesting because she was born in Iran, emigrated as a refugee to New Zealand when she was quite young, and then met her husband when she was teaching English in Japan <laughs> and had become, I know, I, I love her. She's fabulous. And she and I were talking about this because unfortunately the way the travel ban read at the time, because she had been born in Iran, it covered someone like her as well. Oh, and wow. so some of this, yeah, some of the policies that came about and, and I'm hoping that as we move forward, we can see it's important too, for people to understand that we, uh, when I say we, I say, you know, myself as a military family member and a lot of other people, we really want our service members, our family members to be safe. Mm -hmm. So we care a lot about how secure things are. Um, but at the same time, I, I often kind of wonder if people realize just how complicated the system is. So you know, in the case of the five years, so there's multiple processes, it cost me close to $4,000 um, to go through the immigration process as a, as a spouse. And I submitted over 500 pages of documents. Oh, wow. Um, we had to submit copies of letters we'd written to each other, emails we'd written to each other. Um, I had to track down my own military records. Uh, I had to track down police uh, certificates from every country I'd spent more than six months in. Oh my God. <laughs> it ends up being really, uh, you know, it, and, and that's from countries where I can access those things. You know, I was in countries where um, it's, you know, at least there are processes largely where I can find those things online. Um, not everybody's quite so lucky, I guess, but it, it was something whereby, you learn a lot about what it means maybe to consider taking on another nationality. I think that's the other part of this too is what does it mean to be American? Is it worth me going through this crazy process right. to, to come out the other end um, and take on another nationality? Um, because once you have a green card, technically I could kind of just stay there maybe. Um, but I decided to go that extra step um, and become a U.S. citizen. So. Yeah. And, and when we think about the expense and you're talking about $4,000, imagine somebody coming here from, say, a, a, a country in South America, they don't have $4,000 yeah. like, to oh, pay I... to have this happen. Well, but what's crazy is that's $4,000 without an attorney. Like that was me doing all the work. Right. So you can imagine what that's like. And unfortunately, I mean, there are some excellent immigration attorneys and there are some wonderful organizations like Races and um, then uh, the, the National Association of Immigration Attorneys. They are excellent. They do wonderful work. Uh, there are a number of law schools, especially those close to uh, border areas who do have immigration clinics that can be really helpful. But if you're going out and seeking an immigration attorney, it's not always easy to um, make sure that you're connecting with someone who understands your situation. Um, 
and who can help you kind of navigate your way through it. That actually happened to both of our previous guests, Brenda and Renee, both uh, hired uh, immigration attorneys that just took their money and screwed them over. Yeah. Yeah, that is, uh, it's something that breaks my heart because you can't imagine how desperate you feel um, that to have that happen. It, I, I mean, even the situation, I mean, I don't think I ever got quite to that particular scenario. I felt like actually I ran across a number of veterans working within immigration. So the, the green card official that I spoke to, and then actually the gentleman who interviewed me for my naturalization interview was also a veteran. Um, and that was fortunate because we already had orders to move overseas when I had that interview. And I could have been in a situation where I was forced to stay back in the US and not move with my husband. And thankfully, um, after explaining that situation to him, he actually went to his supervisors and advocated on my behalf for me to have an earlier naturalization naturalization ceremony. So I have to say, in the whole five years, that was the one time when running into somebody who understood (laughs) what it meant to be a military family probably shortened my timeline for maybe by maybe three months, I think, over what it would have been for someone else. Um, which is not a long time in the whole scheme of things, but I'm really grateful because it gave me enough time to get my U.S. passport and get us organized to um, to move to Germany as a U.S. citizen. So I became a U.S. citizen and then kind of left the country for a while. <laughs> uh, so now that we know about your story, tell us a little bit, because you said you're an immigration advocate. Um, yes. Tell us a little bit about what the heck is going on right now. <laughs> I mean, I, it's hard because I think a lot of us, and it's not even about being like pro one party or the other, because every administration going back the last five or six, we can point to some things that have been broken. So, so I want people to hear that and hear me say that I don't think that any party has a, a monopoly on, um, necessarily intrinsically being better at fixing this however I'll say this so far under the current administration I have more hope than I had under the previous administration in terms of seeing real legislation that might make it possible for people to have a pathway to citizenship so that was the bill that I mentioned that passed the house yesterday it's got to pass the senate and I think that's where it's going to be a real challenge yeah so for people to understand sometimes you hear about bills in the news that's not necessarily how the final legislation will end up um but there's going to be one called the farm worker modernization bill and that's going to potentially help those migrant farm workers who really keep us fed in the in the U.S. you know they're they're the people doing a lot of the hard work Um, on many farms, particularly in the western part of the US. So the other one is just really improving access to being able to apply for citizenship for those on what they call temporary protection status or TPS. Those tend to be people from countries where there is a large amount of conflict or there's been a natural disaster. So over the last few years, there have been people from Haiti on that type of visa, El Salvador, um, you know, countries where there have been tsunamis or major disruption to their day to their day to their lives yeah right um so those tps 
visas have always been kind of non-immigrant visas. This will potentially allow people to apply for immigration status as an immigrant um, after a period of time. And as long as they can show that there are certain um, familial and, and business reasons for them to continue to stay in the U.S. And that makes sense. If you've been here for five years, your kids are in school, you've got family members here, it makes sense that you kind of feel like you're building a life and you want to find a way to move forward. Right. So, and then finally, it's they're really looking at what they call the Dream Act to try and find a way to, to really allow uh, those that are dreamers to find a path to citizenship. Um, um, that's something that- Tell us what dreamers are for those yeah, that don't so know. Dreamers are those <laughs> uh, are, are children that came to the US um, as undocumented um, children grew up here. Quite a few didn't even know that they were not documented. And I think one of your previous yep, guests was Brenda. in that situation. Yep. Um, and, and so this is, this is a pathway to allow them to become US citizens, which is something that has been kind of been working towards for about four administrations now. Um, but this is kind of an attempt to begin to, a, to an actual solution as opposed to something that is temporary because it, it's hard because one of the things about being undocumented is by as soon as you tell someone that you're undocumented, then you raise your level of risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's something that a lot of people don't understand that there's actually quite a few people within the military community that are dreamers or what they call DACA um, that, that are the children that, that came and that's their, their status is, is under DACA. So um you know, there are people who are currently serving in the military who have that status. There are family members who have that status. And so I think for me, that's where my advocacy often lies. I I would really love to be able to, to spend time thinking and working on immigration as a whole. But I think seeing sometimes the fact that we move around so much within um, military contexts, it's been helpful for me to focus on that because it's also something, especially for those who, who talk about really wanting to support the troops, support military right. families, helping people to understand that every issue that gets talked about in public life impacts military families too. It just impacts us sometimes slightly differently. Um, and we don't always have the same uh, community based on location. So we create a community based on 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 service we create community based on um the fact that we either are someone who served and wore a uniform and and made a commitment to risk our lives or we love someone who's done that um so there's some really incredible organizations that people can look up there's an organization called i'm going to give you the acronym but it's e-m-h-e-m H USA. I'm not gonna. The reason I'm not gonna say that is it's it starts with Esposa Hispanias. It's in Spanish. It's actually an organization founded by Janet Sanchez, who's a fellow military spouse, and works with Spanish-speaking um, military spouses. And that's an organization that if someone is interested in learning more and that's your background, seek out Janet. She does amazing work. Um, and I've worked with her where I'll write articles and she'll translate them for me into Spanish um, because it's just about getting information out there sometimes and helping people understand what their what resources are out there, but also what steps they can take to be able to make good decisions for their family. 
Yeah. And we've uh, had an issue where military spouses have been deported because they were undocumented. Yeah. Yeah. And a couple of cases of military mums. So parents where their children are deployed even um, while that happens. But yeah, military spouses being uh, it. There's been at least half a dozen in the last year or so. Um, And then in addition, you have service members who have gotten out and then themselves have been deported. That's something that happens quite a lot, unfortunately. Um, So much so that there is literally an enclave south of of the border for deported veterans. It's that common that they have a physical community. Um, And then equally, the other kind of immigration-related issue within the military community at the moment is um, really working to advocate for the backlog of special immigrant visas as they apply to translators, interpreters and translators who have supported our military troops on the ground um, to allow them and their families to come to the US because it, it's literally life or death uh, for them to stay where they are because of their role. And, and you know, we, we say this, Megan, often, and that is that we really, you know, if you come after one of us, you're kind of coming after all of us. And if somebody has kind of laid their life down for um, for us, then then it's up to us to also make sure that we respond in a way that respects that that sacrifice that they've made. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a lot more encompassing that I think people realize, too. Um, and, and I have to say, I'm not rare. And then my experience as an immigrant military spouse isn't the same as, as every other's. Like the last base we lived on, because I have to say, everybody, not every military family lives on a base. We Sometimes we live in regular houses, yeah. in regular communities, <laughs> um, especially our National Guard and reservist families, right? They And sometimes they don't move around either. So... Um, it's interesting because the one of the last streets we lived on, there were eight of us on the street from all around the world, in addition to other military families who were US based. But there was a spouse who was originally who was born in Belgium, one who was born in South Korea, one who is from New Zealand, one who is English, myself, and then there was a couple of others as well. So, you know, it's it's something that brings a great richness and diversity to to our communities as a whole, I think. Yeah, absolutely. We were, we were stationed in Virginia in Hampton Roads and uh, we didn't live on base uh, when we were there, but uh, Hampton Roads, for anybody's not familiar, there are so many military bases there that I think there's like 10 in like this short little space. And it's just this melting pot of people. Like it, it's difficult to be in Hampton Roads and not run into somebody who's military affiliated. <laughs> yeah. And they could be from anywhere too, yeah. right? I think that that's something that makes, it's something that I think brings, yeah, that that diversity of thought is a really good thing. The backgrounds is a really good thing. But I think it's also why, you know, we've been seeing in the last few weeks it's so important for the military community and the broader US population to have really hard conversations about racism, about how people perceive um, immigrants, about how people perceive each other because of race. Um, you know, it's it's interesting hearing um, 
maybe media reports or opinion columnists confused as to why that's important for the military to talk about or why it's important for the military to talk about extremism. Right. Um, because it is interesting. I, I have written an article and maybe I'll share it with you, Megan, to link to for your, your guest. It was an article I wrote for a publication called Next Gen Mill Spouse a while ago, but it was actually called 10 Things Not to Say to an Immigrant Military Spouse. And one of, I mean, the things that I've had people say to me, and as you mentioned, my first language is English. I'm kind of the model of what people think is an acceptable immigrant. You know, I have a graduate degree. I sound funny, but I'm acceptable. I'm white. I'm, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But yet I still have people say, I say yet, people shouldn't say this stuff to anybody. I've had people say some just, uh, some really questionable things, like not just the, oh, you only married him for the green card thing, um, but also things like questioning if I was a spy. I've had people, yeah. A spy um, from I've Australia? People, oh, well, I mean, the funny thing was I was in the Australian Army, so I'm like, well, no. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I have to say, I'm not, I've heard that story from a lot of, um, unfortunately, from a lot of immigrant spouses, that sort of accusation, um, which is really disturbing, especially because I think everybody needs to know this. Before we got married and even since, security clearances are pretty uh, robust yep. and they're especially robust if a service member is married to someone who is not US born. Um, so I have to say, I feel pretty safe in saying we've been very thoroughly vetted um, <laughs> in a way that I think a lot of uh, U.S. citizen spouses maybe are not quite so vetted. Oh, we're still vetted pretty are. hard. Like they needed well, to know my mom, my dad, my yeah, grandparents, know, right? where I've lived. <laughs> I think that's interesting though too, because it makes it really hard if you're not somebody who necessarily knows all those things about your family right. or talk um, to them. Well, there's that too. <laughs> Although if you don't talk to them, it's probably a little. There are times where I think, oh my gosh. Having such a big family is, it's a wonderful thing, but it's, it does make for more paperwork. Um, but yeah, I, there's a lot to be said for helping, I think, talking more about kind of the experiences of what uh, military communities are, are working through as well. Um, especially, unfortunately, in light of what's even happened in the last couple of days when we're recording this, this is only a day after the um, shooting in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, yeah. there's a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric yeah. out there. Um, especially right now with the Asian community, because, you know, yeah. um, the previous administration liked to blame China for yep. the COVID yeah. and call it the China virus or Kung flu or many other yeah. very bigoted things that they would call it. Um, and this caused people to, they group all Asians together, right? They're not just like, yeah. oh, you're Chinese. Oh, you're Japanese. Like they're all to them, like the same kind of uh, person. Um, so yeah. there's been a, a really, I guess the article I read yesterday, 150% increase in anti-Asian rhetoric yeah. and violence in the last year. And I think if, if somebody is kind of listening to this and thinking, well, what do I do? There's a few things. I had a great suggestion yesterday from Mickey Kendall, who was saying, if you have a friend who is um, 
you know, a, a member of the Asian American or Pacific Islander community, now is a great time to just call them up and say, hey, can I bring you over a meal? If that's, yeah. you know, bring, like, because right now it's it's weighing really heavy. Um, my friends in, in this community, it's just, it's weighing very heavily. Um, like many, I, I have a very multicultural family. That doesn't mean that I am automatically, you know, less, I'm still working through my own biases and, and figuring right. we all things have out. But yeah, um, you know, I have, I have Japanese cousins. I have a Japanese uncle and, and a Japanese aunt. And I know that one of the things that I've learned from them and my own experience is I certainly prefer when people um, don't necessarily ask me where I'm from. That, that can be a question not all immigrants want to be asked. Right. Um, but I have had, I often prefer when people say to me, so tell me about your accent. Oh, your, your accent is lovely. Tell me about that. That is a much, much, um, for me at least, somebody who is aware I have an accent, I am much happier with that than people guessing because, you know, at least it's a little different, but it's, it's, you have people as well who will kind of make crazy guesses about where they think you're from. And sometimes that's a bit, it's just a really tiring right. to have to constantly, especially if you don't know someone. Although I will say the worst I've ever had was somebody who thought it was a really wonderful thing to tell me how their child could mimic accents oh, and Lord. they could do a great, and they said, and they can do a great Scottish one like yours. <laughs> and I truly yeah that, oh my. That, I mean I've heard that one was that that one was when I was really like okay there's a line and it's way behind you because right. let's not be talking about mimicking accents in fact in general I would just say mimicking someone else's accent unless you are like such good friends with them and you really know that's okay I would just say don't do it ever right that's kind of rude um yeah it's really rude. And and I think people find it really funny. They think they're being funny. Uh, it's very rarely ever funny. There no. are lots of other ways that you can kind of connect with someone who has had a different experience from you. Um, but yeah, I, I think particularly at the moment for the Korean community, there's a lot of heaviness and hurt happening. Um, I know that one of the, uh, one of the young women who was, was murdered yesterday was was a single mum of two boys um and her two boys are well her elder son has shared part of his story and and I I mean for me right now I'm wanting to seek out if it's appropriate seek out the stories of those who have passed away rather than necessarily talking about the person who who however they want to justify it the justifications blow my mind i'm like this just white privilege right there just right in your face yeah right (laughs) racism racism enacted and i I think part of that is facing that and saying like the people really are going to justify this like yes and rather than being shocked by that we can be disappointed we can be outraged by it but i don't think as as an immigrant or not as an immigrant, as a white person in, and an American, I can't be shocked. Right. I'm not I shocked. Have to be, I'm not stunned. Uh, out, uh, yeah. No, you have to be outraged now. Yeah. And, and 
play our own part in in figuring that out. And I have to say that's something that's I had to face in other ways because I found out shortly after moving to America that I actually do have an ancestor that, and I haven't been able to source any more information, but I have ancestors from Alabama and Georgia. And I didn't know oh. that until I moved. And I do know that one of them potentially had a parent who owned a plantation. So it's it's possible that even I have some family lineage, unfortunately, in the in the part of America that um, that is responsible for really much of the foundations of, of what we're working through now. Yeah. Um, so and I don't think I'm the only immigrant that kind of realizes that after they move to America, that the way the world has worked, that we all end up as a white person needing to to work through what that means for us and how we might respond. Right. Um, I grew up um, in a very small part of upstate New York, Canada adjacent. Um, and rural communities tend to be very close-minded um, and very white. And um, I learned a lot of things growing up that I didn't realize as the, at the time were wrong. And um, it took me marrying my husband and moving to Virginia where there, it's just a melting pot of people. And it's hard yeah. to deny your own biases and racism and, in, you know, homophobia, trans, all these things that I had because I was taught growing up. Um, when you are, it, it's like you're around all these people who identify as this. And I have had to, over the past 10 years, slowly unlearn that by educating myself and listening to the stories of people who aren't like me. Um, yeah. And it's been difficult. Sometimes like people will post, my, my friends on social media will post something and it gets me like really angry. No, that's not right. And then I have to be like, what is it though? <laughs> like, is it just me and my biases? And um, a lot of times I realize like I have to unpack it and I'm like, no, that's me. That, that just triggered what I was taught as a child. I need to understand this more. And, you know, it'll never be perfect. Yeah. Um, I have childhood programming that I have to unlearn but I'm actually, I'm actively trying to do, undo that, right? That's, I'm actively trying yeah. to learn and that's important. The, yeah, the, the decision and the realization you, you have some things to unlearn that we all have things to unlearn. Absolutely. That's, you know, it's, it's, I don't necessarily, and I don't think you're saying this. I don't think we deserve congratulations. For right. No, I don't want that. To unlearn that. <laughs> um, but I think that's something that's interesting as well is just realizing the cultural differences between because, you know, people look at me and sort of assume that living in the U.S. must be easy for me. And there is a lot about the like American culture that is massively different. Um, you know, there are some stereotypes about Australia, but like you, I grew up in a rural area. I grew up on what Americans would call a cattle ranch. Um, I grew up around, you know, they, they joke about kangaroos, but legitimately I, there's <laughs> always a lot of kangaroos and, and animals and things around. And um, and it's it's an interesting kind of scenario to kind of move from that kind of environment, which itself was largely homogenous but yet at the same time when I look back and I realize actually it's quite different from sort of that same scenario in the U.S. So um, you know we had local cafes that were owned by Greek immigrants 
who taught us a lot about Greek food, even when I was, you know, that were, were in my small town from the 60s. We had a lot of, um, even in that small community, I went to school with a lot of people from all over Europe and Asia who's, who were generally first-generation Australians. Their parents were the ones that emigrated in the, six, the 50s, 60s and 70s. Um, you know, Melbourne is the largest Greek city outside of Athens, um, Melbourne's also the largest Italian city outside of outside outside of Italy. So much so that they're actually representatives of the Greek and Italian uh, legislatures that represent those diaspora communities and live in Australia. Wow. Um, many cultures around the world that have these really large expat communities actually extend their legislative uh, representation to those communities. So. You know, it, it's funny because even when people ask me, well, what is Australian food? It is so bound up in a much more sort of multicultural sort of understanding of what food is that the things that miss are very much, well, I miss the North Indian and the South Indian restaurants that are right next to each other and the uh, Ethiopian restaurant down the road that serves an era. Those were in Canberra. They weren't in the small town I grew up in. But, you know, for our cap national capital was planned much like Washington DC but because it's the hub for all of these uh diplomats around the world it has this incredible kind of a range of, of food and things like that so but I think culturally some of the things that we notice that are different are you know I I noticed a big difference between things like what come what is more prime primary is it the individual or is it the community right um I would say largely the U.S. is focused on the individual that's not yep. to say that people don't take care of each other but that's how the laws are made that's how it's built and I have to say most of the time Australia doesn't lend it lends more towards the community side which I think for many Americans if they lived there would find that maybe hard to work through because there are times where we do give up elements of our freedom in order to protect the whole which is why I have not been home in two years and I have no idea when I will get back to see my family in the midst of the pandemic. So when I started the podcast, I had a podcast co-host, Jules, she's actually from Australia and I met her because her husband was stationed in yeah. the United States. Well, she's posting cool. all these pictures of everybody in Australia just doing what they want because Australia is so good with yeah. COVID. This is true. And I think it's interesting because they did, I mean, they really were quite strict for a while. Um, I have two sisters in the healthcare profession down there. Um, and I know how, how seriously they took it and how well prepared they were. Got nieces in dance competitions and my brother got married in a very tiny COVID uh, wedding ceremony uh, last November, but actually they're now doing a, a big wedding party in April and I won't be able to be there, but I'm very happy that they are back to normal and that everybody's able to enjoy themselves, especially my, my older relatives. Um, because I think that that was really hard, you know, not being able to hug your grandchildren is a right. or great grandchildren is a really big challenge, but I'm hoping that they'll be able to to kind of keep COVID at bay, continue to keep COVID at bay. Yeah. So as we wrap up the podcast today, 
because we've gone on longer than I was planning, but your story is so know, good. I know, I know. Sorry um, about that. What, what, no, no apologies. I, I love it. Sometimes I'm just like so hooked on it. And then I look at the time and I'm like, oh, <laughs> crap. Um, <laughs> what would you like to leave the Inspired Women audience with? Oh, gosh. Mm. So the first thing is probably just, you know, go if if that if the adventure is a really good adventure, even if you've told yourself you shouldn't do that, um, if it's a good adventure and then then go for it. It can end up being uh, far more of a of a wonderful ride than you ever could have imagined. Um, so I will say that um, it's probably the first thing. The second thing is just that keep an ear out for the discussions around immigration um, and not just the the kind of headline. I would really encourage you to, to start to um, hear and learn a little bit about these different types of, of immigration status that people have, and here's why. There is no such thing as an immigration line. That doesn't exist. That is not a real thing. There is not a line. Nobody can skip the line. That doesn't, it's not how it works. So... If we can get by, past the lying discussion and actually start to talk through how to have a functional, safe, uh, healthy, responsible immigration system, we can continue to move forward in the spirit of, you know, Ellis Island, bring me your, your poor huddled masses. Let, you know, this is what built America. Right. And, and apart from those, you know, Native American communities who, you um, who did not, you know, come through Ellis Island, you know, you, there's a lot of parts of the U.S. that didn't come to the U.S. that way, obviously. Um, but as we start to move forward, I, I want people to be thinking about the reality that much of what happens in the growth of America has been achieved because of either your immigrant ancestors or your immigrant brothers and sisters that are, that are next to you. You know, we run businesses, we employ people, we want the best for our children, just like you want the best for yours. Um, and we all have share stories to share. So yeah, yes. <laughs> that's, that's enough. Well, thank <laughs> you so much for coming on the podcast today. Well, there you go. It was, it's been fun talking to you, man. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.